morning, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you have joined us, whether you're online or the few of you that are here in person. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, we want to praise the Lord. We want to thank him for the things that he is and the things that he's done in our lives uh, and that he's doing in our lives even during a strange time. So would you stand and we're going to worship the Lord this morning. Every desire 
please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The reading is from 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may now be seated. Okay, off to a good start. Well, today is a day of uh, benchmarks. It's a... Um, it's a day of celebration, but it's also a day of mourning. Uh, for the last four years, you all have known uh, Reagan uh, originally as an intern, just kind of hanging around. And uh, very quickly, she was hired on to staff to become, uh, were you an assistant worship pastor or in the uh, spirit of the office, were you an assistant to the worship pastor? Okay, yeah, okay. Anyway, so she would assist the worship pastor, and she's been with us four years, and um, you have led us well. That's the most important thing. Everybody recognizes that you have talent. And that's really important and that's really good. And we're very excited about your career going forward and the things that you're going to do. We all want to watch that um, blossom and it already has been blossoming. But the most important thing is that you led us. You led us in worship. You pointed us to God. You, you directed us in what was important. That is the greatest thing that you could have done for this congregation and you did it well. And now after this four years, you're done with college, you're moving on to uh, other things. Um, we celebrate that four years that we've had with you, but we also mourn losing you. You will forever be with us in our hearts. We love you, Reagan, and we are always here for you. Uh, whenever you come back to Phoenix, we would love to see you. We'd love for you to be a part of this. We'd love for you to lead us again. Uh, that would be our, our wish and our desire. But our bigger wish and our desire was that, is that God would bless you, you would glorify him, and your career, your vocation would just blossom. And that's what we want for you. We have a small token of our appreciation in addition to you being around for the last four years. And I know Stephanie made something special for you that if you're not here, sorry, you don't get a bite. But maybe Reagan will let you have some. And so now we want to pray uh, for Reagan. And so uh, 
If, if anybody, anybody who is here who would like to come up and be a part of this prayer, you, you are more than welcome to uh, come up. So this is, this is the new spiritual laying on of hands. Reagan is living with the, the Serafinos right now, so it's okay if they touch each other, but... The rest of us are kind of trying to find our place, you know, so. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have blessed us uh, just time and time again here at Redemption Arcadia. Um, you've blessed us materially and you've blessed us relationally. You've blessed us with your spirit and with your word. And you've blessed us with Reagan. And uh, what a great time it has been. Uh, it's hard to express words at a time like this. And we know that uh, you have the words and your spirit is working even now. But as we try to articulate our prayer for Reagan, certainly, certainly we ask that you would bless her, that you would protect her and provide for her, that you would give her your wisdom and your hope, and that you would remind her every single day of the promises that you have for her. God, we're thankful for Reagan's family, a family that... Um, serves you and loves you and believes in you and was part of Reagan's uh, shaping and growing in the spirit. And so we're thankful for that as well. And we pray your blessings on their family as they minister in Las Vegas and continue to do so. And so God, as Reagan goes, we just ask that you would go with her. We ask that you give her God's speed and remind her that God's speed is a speed of patience, a speed of relationship, and a speed of understanding. And God, that you would be glorified in all of that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So another reason why today would be a day of benchmarks is that today is also the fourth anniversary to the Sunday of when we moved into this property four years ago. So that's pretty exciting, yeah. Uh, the first four and a half years I spent here, we were leasing property over at Memorial Presbyterian Church on 42nd Street, and Thomas, wow, I can take this off now, thank you, all right. Oh, that's so much better. Hi, I'm smiling. <laughs> um, so today is our fourth anniversary in this property. And uh, not much of a celebration, but we're glad for those of you who are here. Um, but we do celebrate that God has uh, continually provided for us at Redemption Arcadia. It's been amazing. And for those of you who are here and those of you who are uh, watching on the, either the live stream or later on on the recording, uh, we want to thank you for your part in making this property possible. It's been a blessing to us. And even though we can't really gather the way we used to right now, and we have no idea when we'll be able to do that again, uh, I want you to know that we're still using this property uh, and that we're very thankful for it. We're still having small meetings here, all masked up, of course, but we're still using this property. It's been a tremendous blessing to us. Uh, its proximity to other areas is really helpful. It's been a great help in our ministry to be able to be here. And so those of you, any of you who have been participating in us being able to have this property, 
Uh, and that story of being able to obtain this property in an affordable way is, is one of the great God stories that I've ever experienced in my life. And if you ever want to hear that story, I'd be happy to have coffee with you and talk about that. But it is. We thank you for being able to uh, be here. It's important for us. So, um, Reagan's last day. Yikes. I think she'll be back to lead us at times, but yes, yeah, she shook her head. So that's good. Hold her to that. Um, but as a part of this uh, regular staff, that sad celebration, celebration of our anniversary of being in this uh, wonderful property that God has blessed us with. A um, couple of other things. One is, uh, because we're back to primarily internet content, uh, we would like to know a little bit from you uh, how we can best serve you in that. And so we have, um, uh, we have a, a, and I believe there's going to be a slide for this on the live stream, but not here. Let me stop and explain that, chase a little rabbit. We found that having this screen on during the live stream of the sermon uh, kind of messes with the camera. And so those of you who are here in person, you're not going to have slides during the sermon, but I'll go slow, okay, if that's helpful. Um, but, but on the live stream, you'll actually get the slides, okay? So that's why the, the, the screen is off. But there is a, uh, a link now that we're showing on our screen, and it's available on our website also, that you can go to to take this little, it's a very short survey, and it will help us tremendously uh, in being able to serve you through uh, the internet, through digital communication, if you would just let us know uh, about that. That would be really helpful. And the last thing I want to mention is uh, some of you have already gathered who are not here uh, that we do have some people here. We, we have a throng of a baker's dozen, I think it is. But um, the, one of the things I wanted to mention is that for our 9 o'clock live stream on Sunday mornings, it is okay if you want to come to this live stream. Uh, we have a limit of 50. We don't think we're ever going to come close to that limit of 50. I just want you to know that it's available for you to come if you feel like you want to be at a service at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning and be part of the live stream, you can. If you do come, you have to wear a mask and you have to, you can't sit in the front, you can't sit too close to us because the people who are on the platform, we're now going maskless and we're, we're actually happy about that. That, we could, that. One of the advantages of that is that we've been able to go maskless. Um, but you're welcome to come to this uh, nine o'clock. Just wear a mask and make sure that you uh, socially distance. And in fact, those of you who are here today, I want you to know that you are um, you are ministering to myself and to the musicians who lead us. Um, it's really difficult to pull off a service as such, um, preaching either only to empty chairs and no faces, or if the only face you're looking at is Caleb's. Not that Caleb's face is bad. I love Caleb's face. I like looking at Caleb, but frankly, after about 30 minutes, I'm ready to look somewhere else, okay? So uh, it's helpful if you come to give us somebody else to be able to uh, lead and to be able to speak to and to be able to look around uh, the room as well. So just, just let you know that that's available. We know that um, a lot of you are going to be cautious, and that's good, and you won't want to come. But for those of you who feel like it's okay to come, it's okay to come. So we are in the book of 1 John, and Tyler James started that book for us, preached the first two sermons while uh, Jackie and I were away in Wisconsin. And uh, the way he's started this series has just been absolutely magnificent. Um, he's hit all the most important points. Uh, one of the things that we've done 
because all the Redemption Churches for this six weeks that we're in right now, we're all doing our own thing. The Big R uh, Redemption uh, Preaching Collective has been canceled, but Arcadia has decided to have its own preaching collective uh, for First John. So we've been gathering at Arcadia to have a preaching collective, and that's been really helpful, not only to Tyler, but also to myself as we preach uh, the rest of these messages in First uh, John. It's been wonderful to get together and have those uh, discussions. Um, let me give you a few more reminders about the Apostle John. And by the way, on August 9th, we're going to start the Gospel of John. And we're going to spend the first couple messages in the Gospel. We're going to look at text in the Gospel of John, but we're also going to spend a lot of time uh, going much deeper and unpacking the history of the person of John the Apostle. Um, but just a, a few little things now to remind you of who John is, the one who's writing this letter of 1 John. Um, John is known for having a very simple vocabulary, and yet don't let that fool you, he is not simplistic. He's simple, but he is certainly not simplistic. He has wisdom and perspective like few other people. Here's the way I would say it, it's almost like he belongs in the Bible, okay? He has incredible depth and insight. He just has a way of communicating it uh, so that people um, can really understand it, and it's poetic, and it's, and it's very artful, which we appreciate. He also, John, has this amazing, you wouldn't know it just to do a cursory reading, but when you really get into his readings, he has an amazing hold on the history and the doctrine of the Old Testament. And he brings all of that into his New Testament writings. There's the shadow of that behind everything, virtually everything that he writes in the New Testament. And so that's wonderful. And so this passage that we're looking at today, frankly, it's a long, long passage. And, and, and that's more than just what Reagan read. Reagan only read the first section of the passage we're going to look at. That's the section that we're going to spend the most time in. Uh, frankly, but there are three sections to this passage. We're also going to get into the beginning of chapter 3 as well. So the first section, the reading, is chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. We have sort of titled this the, anti the Antichrist and the Antichrists, plural. Uh, one of the reasons we're going to spend most of our time here is because I think it's one of the most misunderstood portions of the New Testament. A lot of people point to this section of the New Testament in order to uh, buttress an agenda of their own that is not necessarily an agenda of biblical doctrine. And so we have great misunderstanding as a result of this. And here are the four things that I would argue in this section that Reagan read that we desperately need to understand, and that's what we're going to spend some time unpacking. So we need to understand the last hour. That's mentioned twice in verse 18. We need to understand... The Antichrist, that's the singular Antichrist with a capital A. But then we also need to understand the many Antichrists. That's plural Antichrists with a small a. And then we need to understand that those many Antichrists went out from us, but were not of us. And that's an important distinction. So the first thing is the last hour. The last hour. Especially with the recent events of the pandemic, there was a pretty major earthquake in Utah recently. There have been the periodic locust swarms both in Africa and in the United States. I don't know if you knew that there have been some locust swarms in the United States. Uh, and, of course, the massive amount of civil unrest that we've been experiencing. 
it has become easier and easier to assume that we are in what I might call the true last hour or what we also might call the last, last hour. Uh, like, like, for real, this is really going to happen. By the way, uh, because of what's happened recently and the fact that we've had to pause the regathering, I would argue, indefinitely, um, uh, as a staff, the pastors here have talked about adding a lot more internet content. And so we're going to start doing Wednesday night Bible studies again, but we're going to live stream them. They're going to be just like this. Practically nobody here, but we're going to live stream them. We're going to capture the live stream, and then we're going to put it on our YouTube channel. So you can watch it in real time on Wednesday night. You can sit there and watch it during dinner if you want, or you can uh, watch the recording later on. And we're going to start that on July 22nd. And what we're going to do on July 22nd is Tyler James and I are actually going to have a discussion about the last times. And so, yes, we're going to look at some passages in Revelation, and we're going to look at some passages in some other um, New Testament and Old Testament texts as well, but we're going to have that conversation on Wednesday, uh, July 22nd. So mark your calendar. So uh, a lot of people are looking at, our, at the world we're living in today, and the worst, they're saying, this is the last, last hour. Like, it's for real. And they're, and they're saying, you know, as I say, yeah, but people have said that before. And they'll say that, yeah, I know, I know. For generations, for hundreds of years, people have said that before. The last, last hour, the last, no. This time, it's for real, for real. This time, it really is the last, last hour. And then they say, and First John chapter 2 says so. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't, okay? We need to understand, Jesus can come back when? Anytime, yes, thank you, Ben. Whenever, anytime he wants, whenever he's good and ready. He could have already come back. He hasn't, but he could have already come back. He could come back at any time. The problem is, is that here you go. We always have to go to this. No one, that's no one, that's no exception, okay? There's no wiggle room here. No one knows the day or the hour. That's Matthew chapter 24. So here's what we need to understand. If Jesus does come, great. But if he doesn't come, stay prepared and alert, as Peter tells us, but live your life. Live your life. Uh, Schrader talked one time about very early in his, in his uh, Christian walk, before he really understood a lot of this, um, somebody told him that they had the date when Jesus was coming. Uh, and Tom believed him, and so he did not order a daytimer for the following year because he didn't think he was going to need it. That's a true story. Okay, by the way, for those of you wondering what's a daytimer, it was an analog calendar that we used to carry around with ourselves a long time ago instead of in our phone, and we'd write stuff in it, okay? And you'd have to order a new one every year, okay? Be alert, but live your life. Here's what we need to understand. The last hour... That phrase in 1 John describes the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, whenever that is. That's, that's as simple as it is. It describes the time between his first coming and his second coming. That's it. The time between his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and when he returns, whenever that is. That's the last hour. It's nothing more. So here you go. It was the last hour in 90 AD when John wrote this. And it's the last hour now in 2020. 
they weren't special, we're not special, they didn't live in special times, we probably don't live in special times, though we live in challenging times. The last hour is not some special time when his return is imminent because his return has what? Always been imminent. He can come at any time. And it might be next week, but it might be 10,000 years from now or even longer. So that's the last hour. Here's the second one. Antichrist, singular, capital A. Uh, this is how, what some commentators describe as a proper name, the Antichrist, capital A, a proper name that identifies the final evil ruler who is to come, who is energized by and fully subservient to Satan. And the Antichrist, of course, will oppose Christ, will oppose Jesus. And again, uh, more conversation about this. You may think you know who the Antichrist is. You're just sure you know who it is, but you don't. And speculation abounds. I mean, I, just if you're on the Internet in any way, shape, or form, you're going to see stuff on the Internet about this speculation. But you'll be fooled. I'll be fooled. That's why I don't speculate on this at all. Um, my favorite story about this is uh, when I was leading as the lead pastor of Paradise Valley Community Church, uh, in 2008, there was an election that year, if you didn't remember, um, in November of 2008. Uh, around January 2008, I started getting, um, and it started as a trickle, but pretty, pretty soon it became a dam, dam that burst wide open, and it was a flood of emails from people telling me who the Antichrist is. And all of these emails, every single one of them, during the Democratic primary, every single one of them was Hillary Clinton is the Antichrist. Hillary Clinton is the Antichrist. Hillary Clinton. And, and I just, so I'm sitting there in front of my computer. Delete, 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 delete. Oh, there's one that didn't put it in the subject. I actually opened it up. Oh, Hillary's the Antichrist. Delete, delete. Okay. Then somehow, some way, out of seemingly nowhere, Barack Obama secures the Democratic nomination. I think it was April of 2008. Suddenly, Hillary is not the nominee for the Democratic Party. It's Barack Obama. Less than 12 hours, what do you think I was getting in my inbox? Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Delete, delete, delete lead. It's just fascinating to me. And, and, and what, I, what I don't understand, I'm just stunned about, is because at that time, of course, I knew all along that the Antichrist was Miley Cyrus. Who didn't know that? You know? Here's the thing. In all seriousness, I found that most people, myself included, have very little shame or regret or humility when they're wrong, either politically or theologically. We in the church need to be more humble and empathetic and self-aware. By the way, what's the message today? There are two antichrists out there vying for the position. It's Donald Trump and Bill Gates. They're, they're the two leaders in the antichrist poll uh, right now. No, they're not. They're not the, neither one of them, I guarantee you, neither one of them is the Antichrist. Here's why. It's not going to be that obvious, people. Satan is way too clever for that. He's way too smart.
to make it that obvious. Here you go. I am more likely to be the Antichrist than Bill Gates or Donald Trump. In fact, some of you know how much I enjoy um, this idea of opening up a, a big t-shirt shop. Um, so some of the pastors are talking about, you know, Pastor Frank may be the Antichrist, our new t-shirt here at Redemption Arcadia. It's more likely, I'm telling you, it's more likely. This is, this is a distraction more than anything else. We need to be careful of that. So that's the Antichrist. So I've answered nothing for you other than to quit pursuing that with such vigor. Okay. Here's the third thing. Many Antichrists, plural, small a, lots of them, here, now, everywhere. They were there in John's day, everywhere, many of them. Okay? And this term antichrist, just so you know, it can mean one of two things. It can mean against or opposing Christ, but it can also mean in place of Christ. Now, certainly the antichrist is against Jesus Christ. And these many antichrists, small a, plural, they are also against Christ, but many of them also set themselves up in place of Christ. And we need to understand, they set themselves up in place of, of Christ, not necessarily in the messianic savior sense, but rather they are saviors as in my teaching, my insight, and my way of doing things is the only, the only correct teaching, the only correct insight, the only correct way of doing things. And to not follow me means that you're going to be lost. That's, that's generally the message of these many antichrists. In other words, these many antichrists are false teachers, they are heretics, and they are wolves who are ensconced in the Christian faith, but they deny the power of the Christian faith. And they aren't Christians at all, in other words. Although they dress themselves up as Christians and they lead many astray. Uh, these antichrists are desperate for power and status and influence. They're also generally insecure and arrogant and narcissistic, very self-righteous. And since the dawn of the church, I mean like five minutes after Jesus ascended, there have been antichrists roaming around churches and faith communities looking to lead people astray. And John is warning about them, us about them. So John talks about these antichrists. Peter talked about these antichrists. Paul talked about these antichrists. Even Jesus warned us against these antichrists. In Mark chapter 13, verse 6, he says, Many will come in my name with the banner of Jesus. They will come saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. Even Jesus said this would happen. And by the way, did I say there would be many? Like a lot? There are many. And many is a biblical word. It's in the Bible. Look it up. Many. There's many of these antichrists. And these false teachers, these antichrists, they say they believe in Jesus, and they often say it with great passion. But the longer we're around them, the more we hear their teaching, the more we push them on their views the truth eventually starts to come out. And ultimately what it is, as John explains, is that they're in denial about something that's important. They're in denial. One of the great marks of the false teacher or of the Antichrist, as John says here, is that while they profess Jesus, they're also denying essential aspects of Jesus and or the gospel. So they'll deny the incarnation. They'll deny that Jesus became a human being. Or they'll deny that Jesus could be God and human at the same time. They'll deny that. They'll also uh, deny the deity or the necessity or even the reality of the Trinity. They'll deny that the Trinity exists. And there's many of those out there. Yes, Jesus 
is God, but, but the Holy Spirit really isn't. Or they'll say the Holy Spirit is God, but Jesus really isn't. They'll say things like that once you pin them down. They'll deny the Father. They'll deny the Son, or they'll deny the Spirit. Or here's, here's what I found is the most common one. This is the, most com- this is the one that for 25 years I have run into over and over and over. An antichrist will make the Holy Spirit more important than anything else. More important. The Holy Spirit can override what Scripture says. The Holy Spirit can override what Jesus said in Scripture. The Holy Spirit can override God the Father. The Holy Spirit is supreme. And here's what's so convenient. And I have a direct line to the Holy Spirit. We all do. If you're a Christian, you have a direct line to the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, 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 ever tell you something that's contrary to Scripture. Never. And that's one way you can, quote, test the spirits. They also deny the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. They say, yes, Jesus died for your sins, but you must also follow this or do this. And they'll also deny grace, but they'll deny grace in a way that seems to affirm it. They're very good at doing this. They'll deny grace by saying, yes, grace of Jesus Christ, but also. Anytime somebody says grace, yes, but also, that but also, heretic, okay? Grace plus works. Grace plus this. Grace plus that, whatever. Grace plus doing ministry my way, whatever it is. That, again is a false teacher. Uh, here's another one, and, and this I find fairly common as well. They'll deny some aspect of the teaching of Jesus, but they will cling to, embrace, and hold, and proclaim some other teaching of Jesus. Okay? So here's, frankly, here's a very common one today. Jesus and justice. 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 Okay, great. Jesus was a man who proclaimed justice for the oppressed, yes. Can we also have a conversation about Jesus' ethic of marriage and sexuality? No, we can't have that conversation. Don't agree with that. Don't agree with that. That's a, that is an antichrist. And they do this with great passion. They deceive, and that's ultimately their wheelhouse. And why? Why are they doing, doing it? Well, they're they're doing it not to serve, although they'll tell you that's why they're doing it, to serve you. And they're, and they're not doing it because they genuinely care for you, although they'll tell you that they genuinely care for you. And, that, and they're very much like Jim Jones in this regard. They care for you so much that they will curse you if you walk away from them. That's how much they care for you, okay? So why? Why do they do it? They do it because they crave a following. They do it because they crave the affirmation of man. They do it because they crave power and influence, and they crave being needed. And they were around in Paul's day, they were around in Peter's day, they were around in Jesus' day, they were around in John's day, and they're around us today. And why? Because we're primed. Because we've always been primed. It's easy to lead us astray. We're primed and we're looking for a way, we're looking, all of us, every one of us, is looking for a way to justify our self-righteousness and our rebellion. Here's, here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, by the way, that was 
during Paul's time, and that's today as well, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. That's the word I've been focusing on lately. People are just unappeasable. No matter what you do, you can't appease them. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always seeking, but never able to say, okay, I think that God is it. I think Jesus is it. And I want you, again, I want you to hear this. Paul writes this around 63 AD. He wrote this before John wrote it. And he says, and I want you to understand, that in the last days there will come. Is Paul saying, look, None of these people are around here now. We don't have to worry about it now. But those people in the 21st century, they better worry about those people. No, Paul is saying those people are here now because we're in the last days right now, and they're going to be here with us until Jesus comes again. The last days started with Jesus' ascension. They will end with him coming again. It's the same thing in John. Last item Number four, they went out from us, but they were not of us. These antichrists, they do start in the church. They, in a sense, they secure their bona fides, but ultimately they do not hold to the biblical doctrine of the church. Outwardly, they have the appearance of godliness, but in reality they deny God's power because they are really more interested in their own power. It is the very definition of iniquity, of sin. Physically, they often stay at a church or stay associated with a church, and they gather followers, and they teach classes, and they increase their power and influence, but ultimately they are against the church and not part of the body of Christ. And this is why John says in chapter 4, I already mentioned this once, it's why John says in chapter 4 of this letter, and many pastors throughout history have said the same thing, and even today we say it, you need to test the spirits. If you think the Spirit is telling you something, you need to test that against what? Against the Scriptures, against what Jesus said, against who Jesus is. You need to test it against God's Word. Paul says, it, excuse me, John says it like this in chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are for, from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You heard Tyler uh, early in this series talk about how um, Paul is very linear in his writing, but John is, is Jewish in his writing, so he keeps circling back to things. So here he is. He's, in chapter 4, he's circling right back to this idea of the many antichrist in chapter 2 by saying you have to test these spirits. Peter tells us the same thing. He says to be alert, be on guard, be of sober mind. And so besides testing the spirits and being on guard, what else can we do about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. I heard somebody out there ask this question. John actually gives us three other items in this paragraph that will help us with this. The first is in verse 20. For those who have genuinely been reconciled to God, they have been anointed. 
You have been consecrated. You have been set apart by the resurrected Christ. You are different. Now, God doesn't necessarily call you to be odd. That can be a problem sometimes. But he does call us to be different because we are different. And therefore, because we're consecrated, because we're set apart, we have the insight and wisdom to test the spirits. And you know it's a false spirit when what you think might be right, but it does not line up with Scripture. In my life, I've had seven or eight times when I believe God has clearly spoken to me in my spirit. And, and there were two reasons why I was sure that it was God who spoke to me in my spirit. Number one, it did not contradict God's word. In fact, it was affirmed in God's word. And number two, I really didn't want to hear it. Isn't it interesting how people who say, the spirit told me this, it's always stuff they want to hear and never something that's going to challenge them. They want to hear it. It's not affirmed in Scripture, but the Spirit told them, so they got to do it. This is a problem. Secondly, in verse 21, those who are genuinely reconciled to God also know the truth. And we know there is this type of truth that our fallen hearts and the world and these false teachers try to convey to us, but but then again, we also know that there is what Francis Schaeffer called true truth, real truth, genuine truth. Yes, there is a truth with a capital T, and it's God, and it's his truth. Here you go. If, if something sounds good, but there's a spirit in you that's troubled about whether or not it's correct, you better check it out because it's probably not correct. That is the Holy Spirit saying, check this out, check this out, check this out. And the way God, uh, the way John words this too, I think is really interesting. He, he's saying, because we know the truth, we have the ability to check it out. This is, a, this is an old illustration and an old story, um, but, but, but it makes a great point. Okay? It's the idea that if, if you're a banker, if you're a teller, and you want to learn about counterfeit money, what they teach you is what a real $100 bill looks like, not what all the counterfeits look like. They teach you what the real one looks like because then you can spot a counterfeit at any moment. So occasionally we'll have people come and say, why don't you do a class on this, um, this cult or this heresy or whatever it is. I won't name names, but you get the idea. Why don't you do a class on that so that we can identify that? No, I'd rather do a class on this because if you know this, you can identify any heresy. That's, that's the idea with that. And then here's number three. Verse 24, what we have heard from the beginning abides in us. We've heard it from the beginning, and it abides in us, not because we're clinging, but because God is clinging. The gospel does not change. And when these antichrists come along and try to spin the gospel in their way, often talking about, here you go, here's another one thing that they do. Oh, this is new teaching. This is progressive teaching. This is a, an insight that nobody has ever revealed before about these scriptures. Just a, one word ought to enter your mind, bogus. It's bogus. New teaching is always old heresy. New teaching is always old heresy. So we've been, wow, that's a lot. We've been in the last hour for 2,090 years. There is the Antichrist, and that should concern us. 
but don't delude yourself into thinking that you know who it is. And there are many antichrists, false teachers, and frankly, we should be way more concerned about and on guard against the many antichrists. So here's the second section. I promise you, we're going to go much quicker now. But I need to read the second session. So it's uh, chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, that's Jesus he's talking about, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know what, that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is, has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We call this the hope of the children of God. Uh, this is the one place in this letter where John uses the word hope. And as such, he acknowledges how important true hope is to the Christian. It's a hope that's rooted in the promises of God and not in the folly and uncertainty of humanity and this world. And in these five verses, John actually provides us with five characteristics of those who hope, whose hope is in the salvation and promises of God through his son Jesus. So here they are. Number one, verse 28. We have the characteristic of abiding in Jesus. That word abide means to remain attached permanently. But how? How do we remain attached permanently? Well, we read and study the scriptures, we pray together, we live humbly, we serve others, we press into the faith community, but also we remember that God's promise is that he is abiding in us. Yes, we should work at abiding in him, but, but the great story, the story of grace and love is that he is abiding in us. He abided in us first before we ever abided in him. And if God is abiding in us, how likely is it that we're going to lose our salvation? His abiding is, is full proof, you know. And that's going to produce fruit. That's verse 2. Verse 29, we practice righteousness. That, that's part of the fruit of abiding in God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's uh, Galatians chapter 5. Those of us who knew, know Christ are going to begin to practice this fruit, these these nine characteristics that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5. And here you go. It's a supernatural fruit producing. It's not us just willing ourselves to doing it and trying harder and, and, and just doing everything. It's not us pulling us up by our own bootstraps. Yes, there is, there is an awareness and an effort that comes from us, but ultimately the power comes from the gospel and the Holy Spirit residing in us. Again, Tom my best illustrations are from our founding pastor. Anyway, again, Tom. Uh, Tom, uh, in the house that he had uh, about 20 years ago, in his backyard he had uh, four or five of these fruit trees. He had grapefruit trees and orange trees in his backyard. And Tom used to say he never once went out into the backyard and heard the fruit groaning and moaning trying to grow and produce. 
And the reason is because the fruit was attached to the tree, attached to the, to the roots. The fruit was abiding in the tree, which was producing the growth for the fruit. That's us abiding in the vine of Jesus, and he is producing the fruit through us. The third thing is in verse 1. We know that we are loved. How do we know? Just look at the cross. If you've got to look somewhere else, you're missing the point. Just look at the cross. Number four, characteristic. Our adoption leads to image bearing. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we are being conformed to the image of God. We're not perfect at this image bearing, but, but we begin to bear the image of God. Uh, Paul, in um, Ephes- the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, walk in love and be imitators of me as I imitate God. He's calling us to imitate God. And remember, John is telling us that we're adopted children of God. And so it would only be natural that we would try to imitate our father. Um, when I was about 10 years old, our, our family went to uh, Mission Beach in San Diego for a vacation. And my dad was, was walking on the beach. And he was walking in that area. He wasn't walking in the water, but he wasn't walking on the dry sand. He was walking on that wet sand that would get wet, and then the water would recede. So as he's walking around, along, he's putting footprints in the sand. And of course, I'm a 10-year-old kid, and I'm walking behind my dad. I'm trying to put my footprints in the sand following my father. That's actually the picture that Paul has for us of imitating God. He says, you, you, you need to try to walk in it. You're not going to do it. I, I stumbled and fell, and was, his legs were longer than mine. But, but you tr- we're trying to walk in his uh, footsteps. And then number five is in verse three. We seek purity and holiness. You know, first Peter, Peter says, uh, be holy as he is holy. It's the idea that we're going to seek after him and not seek after the distractions of this world. Seek after holiness and not happiness, and you will be happy. But if you seek after happiness, you're going to be all screwed up. I mean, Jesus said that in so many words in the Sermon on the Mount. C.S. Lewis said it in, in the 20th century in his writings as well. You know, you seek after the world, you're going to miss the world, and you're going to miss God. But if you seek after God, you get the world thrown in as a bonus. So these would be the five marks or characteristics of true children. And then our last section, verses 4 through 11. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, Jesus, and in him, Jesus, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's pretty stark. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother or, I would add, his sister as well. It's a common literary feature in the Bible to speak in clear contrast. It's often, it's often known as something called antithesis. It's setting up two opposing views. It's, it's the most common way that wisdom literature in the Bible, for instance, uh, the Proverbs, 
is presented. There's no nuance, there's no gray area, comes right at you. And here, John presents the antithesis and contrast of sin and righteousness. And he does this for eight verses. And, and he says, sin and righteousness really don't mix very well. And again, two children are marked by a sense of righteousness. And because Jesus is pure righteousness, our righteousness is always sullied somewhat, but because Jesus is pure righteousness, we must turn to him as our only hope for redemption and that righteousness. We must abide in him. And without Jesus, whatever righteousness we practice is always polluted by sin, which then makes our righteousness corrupt. We need to remember that. So here, John presents a contrast between those who sin habitually or repeatedly in verse 8 and those who do not sin habitually or repeatedly in verse 9. He said there's this group of people and there's this group of people. And that's it. There's a binary, I know, a terrible word to use in today's culture, a dichotomy, you know, in or out. That's really exclusive. Uh-huh. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yes. But not me. I didn't say it. This is God saying it. Okay? But I am proclaiming it. So, yeah, go ahead. Blame me, email me, tweet against me, whatever you want to do. See, he, John is saying this, this righteousness is an indication of our true or false relationship with Jesus. And he says, he's asking the question, are you adopted by God? Are you God's child? We've already talked about that. Are you God's child or are you a child of the devil? Are you a child of wrath? More scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, children of the devil, children of wrath. I'll go ahead and read uh, th through verse 5a as well. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive again in Christ Jesus. So we were in that category of unrighteousness, and now we are in Christ. Not that we've been, be, not that everything we do is righteous, but we've been made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. And, and remember, in chapter 1, J, uh, Tyler covered this. In chapter 1, John has already repudiated the notion of sinless perfect perfection. He's repudiated the notion of sinless perfection. That's verses 8 and verses 10 uh, in John chapter 1. This side of heaven, you and I will still battle with this channel, uh, this, this uh, challenge. Even Paul points that out in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I don't know what I'm doing. The things I want to do, I don't do them. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I find myself doing. This back and forth, sin and flesh and this, uh, this, this great struggle. And then at the end, he says, oh, this wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where the power resides. That's where our salvation lies. But habitual sin is an indication, a possible indication of serious trouble in our relationship with Jesus. And it should be dealt with. And it should be dealt with candidly and resolutely. And here you go. 
here's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't withdraw. So many people who are dealing with habitual sin, what they do is they just withdraw. That's the last thing you, you need to do or should do or, or would want to do. You need to press in. Uh, contact the pastors and get help. Maybe clinical help is, 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 is something you need. But don't withdraw. Habitual sin is a press in and fight issue. It is not a sulk away and flee issue. That's really important. Paul tells us to flee immorality, not flee the faith community. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer in the uh, 16th century, had a very interesting way of saying what the human condition has looked like through history. There's been four categories of it. And, it, and if you read it in the Latin, I don't really understand Latin, but it happens to be more beautiful and more interesting. But if you read it in the Latin, it's more interesting. But here's what he says in the English. There was a time when humanity was able to sin, and we were able not to sin. We were able to sin, but we were also able not to sin. And that would be Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Then there was a time when humanity was not able not to sin, completely unable to not sin. That would be Genesis 3-7 or 3-8 through the resurrection of Jesus. And then the question became, do you believe in Jesus? And then we enter the third historical category, which he described as able not to sin. We're sinners, but now we have the power of Christ, and so we're able not to sin. But hold your horses, because what's coming in the new Jerusalem is this, not able to sin. That's the coming glory of Jesus. That's the new Jerusalem. We will finally be made perfect. Everything will be restored. Uh, the wedding that you see at the end of Genesis chapter 2 between Adam and Eve, we see a brand new wedding between Christ and his church, the wedding banquet that we're invited to. And our sinlessness goes away. There's going to be no more tears, no more crying. And we will not be able to sin anymore. And that will be the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God. And that's why that, that beautiful passage in, in 1 John chapter 3, I'm going back to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We are children of God through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And we are, we are headed towards that fourth category, not able to sin. That's the gospel. We have tasted redemption. We have tasted restoration. We have a foretaste of it, but it will be made complete when he comes again. And when you see the cross and you think about the resurrection, the empty turn, the empty tomb, we need to understand that is an eternal act of adoption. And if you know Christ, you have been adopted in the most significant way that anybody can be adopted. And that's his love for us. That's his grace for us. Let me pray. And we'll have our final song in communion. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. Man, I feel like being away two weeks, I was all pent up. <laughs> uh, and what a great passage to be able to come back to and to be able to talk about. And this passage is great because it's your words, not because of anybody that proclaims it. Help us to be reminded of that. Help us to be reminded that every word 
of your scripture is designed to point us to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, and to fill us with your Holy Spirit. So we pray that that would happen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we're going to have uh, a time of communion. And so those of you who are here, um, let me just say, I, I have to say that there is an advantage to doing church at home during the live stream because you get to prepare your own communion and you get to pick the elements. And my guess is that the elements are gonna be a little bit better than this little package. This package is important for us here to be able to do communion because it, it keeps us uh, safe in the midst of this pandemic. But for those of you that are at home, I hope that you have, you have now prepared, or if you haven't, pause and go and prepare your elements and take communion. Come to the Lord's Supper. Um, the Catholics call this the Eucharist. And the meaning of the word Eucharist is actually thanksgiving, to give thanks. This is a time of celebration. This is a time when we come and celebrate our salvation in Christ. But it's also a time when we confess that without Christ, have nothing. It's a time to identify with Jesus and be able to say resolutely that we are Christians, we are Christ followers, we believe and we have faith. So those of you that are here, you get to wrestle a little bit with opening the package. Those of you that are home, uh, take and eat the elements. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had eaten, took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the remission of sin, for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. Let's do that now.
shall return in robes of white.